you would please turn in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. Uh, This will be our final sermon in the Gospel of Mark for the year. As I said, next week we will begin an Advent sermon series. Uh, So uh, today we will be looking at Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Please give attention now to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that is Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do for them. You can do for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Would you come with me in a word of prayer? Our dear Father in heaven, we come here and see this bright light in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of betrayal, in the midst of lust for power. We see this bright light of this woman and her service to you, giving her precious possessions over to Jesus Christ, her Lord and Savior. We pray, O Father, that this morning and this time in your word, you would help us to take what is most precious to us, whatever belongings those might be, and throw them at the foot of Jesus Christ. We pray, O Father, that your spirit would be near, open up the eyes of our hearts to see Christ afresh this morning, we pray. For we ask it in the strong name, of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, Over the last several weeks, we've seen Jesus bringing words of condemnation to the leaders in Israel. In chapter 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and goes into the temple and cleanses it uh, because the court of the Gentiles, you will recall, had been turned into really a marketplace rather than a place of worship. This sparked outrage from the leaders in Israel and really for the remainder of chapter 11 all the way into chapter 12, uh, we really see uh, leaders challenging Jesus's authority. 
Uh, within those exchanges between Jesus and these leaders in Israel, Jesus condemns the leadership uh, in Israel, which ultimately leads to what we looked at the last two weeks with the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus prophesies uh, the destruction of the temple, which ultimately spells a condemnation on the leaders within Israel. Uh, today, we see that these words of condemnation against uh, Israel's leaders are really what precipitates their desire to kill Jesus, as we see in the first two verses uh, of our passage this morning. Uh, we are told that two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the chief priests and scribes were seeking for a way to arrest Jesus and to kill him by stealth, as Mark puts it. And the reason they want to do it stealthily, the reason they want to do it in secret, uh, is because it is Passover week. Uh, normally, Jerusalem's uh, population was around 50,000 people, but during the Passover festival each year, Passover week, uh, the city would swell up to a population around 200,000 people. And as always, when there are a lot of people, there are always threats of sort of uh, commotion and uh, riots, as we even see today. Rome would take serious precautions uh, during these Passover weeks each year. Uh, they would set up guards and extra security within Jerusalem uh, to quell any riots that might break out among uh, the massive crowds. And so the chief priests and scribes don't want to cause a riot, uh, because they might be accused of insurrection against the Roman government. So they have to do this secretly. They have to arrest and kill Jesus quietly. Well, what best way to do that than to have someone working on the inside for you? And we see that it is exactly what takes place in verse 10 through 11 uh, in the person of Judas, one of Jesus's own disciples. We are told that Judas goes to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus. Uh, the chief priests receive this news gladly uh, because here is someone that can lead them to Jesus quietly, someone who can bring them to Jesus when there aren't these massive crowds around which might cause an uproar. Uh, it's interesting, I think, to consider. I don't think we consider it too often, to be honest with you. I don't know that I've really considered it, but that Jesus most likely would not have been killed if it weren't for Judas. Judas is the missing link for these chief priests, these scribes, and the leaders in Israel uh, to kill Jesus. Notice the calculated nature of all of this. Verse 1, they were seeking to arrest him by stealth because of the great crowds. This isn't some reaction. They're not just angry because of their exchanges with Jesus and in a fit of rage they want to kill Jesus. No, they notice the great crowds and they try to figure out a way to get around them. Uh, verse 11, Judas sought an opportunity to betray him. In other words, this is not some reactionary sin on the part of the chief priests, scribes, and Judas. Uh, this is not, well, you know, I just got caught up in the crowd and, and group think, and I, I just sort of acted without really ever knowing. No, this is calculated 
thought-out murder and betrayal on the part of the chief priests, scribes, and Judas. I actually heard someone say recently, you know, I, I kind of feel sorry for Judas. He didn't really know what he was doing. Don't cry for Judas. Judas knew exactly what he was doing. And the condemnation that he is currently receiving is certainly just. So really what we have in verse 1 through 2 and verse 10 through 11 uh, is this darkness on the fringes of this passage. You have this, uh, this uh, chief priests and scribes seeking to kill Jesus, but they need to do it quietly and secretly. And the passage ends with uh, the one missing link, Judas, Judas, one of the disciples who is willing to give Jesus up. So we have bookending this passage, darkness, in the plot of the chief priests and scribes in the betrayal of Judas. Yet in between these bookends, Mark sandwiches in a bright light represented by this woman who pours ointment on the head of Jesus. And the darkness and the evil that stand on the fringes of this passage in verse 1 through 2 and 10 through 11 only serve to highlight the beauty and the light and the wonder and the goodness of the service of this woman who throws this ointment upon Jesus' head. It's so true that oftentimes that which is bright is often illuminated even more when it's seen in the midst of darkness. And it seems that's what Mark is doing here. He has on verse 1 and 2 and 10 and 11 the bookends of darkness, but packed in between is this bright light of this woman and her service to her Lord and Savior. And so what I want to do for the remainder of our time is look at this woman's service. And I want to look at three things from this woman's service. First, I want us to see her commitment to Jesus. Second, I want us to see her compassion for Jesus, and third and finally, uh, her crown from Jesus, her commitment, her compassion, and her crown. So first, her commitment uh, to Jesus. Verse three, we are told that Jesus is in Bethany at Simon the leper's house. Now, this man is more than likely a former leper that Jesus has healed since it would not have been good for the Jewish people to be in his house. He would have been considered ceremonially unclean. So he is more than likely a former leper that Jesus has healed, and he is now uh, reclining at table in his house. He apparently was so well known to Mark's reading audience that Mark simply calls, calls him Simon the leper, as though the original audience and reading audience of Mark's gospel would know exactly who this person is. So Jesus is at Simon the leper's house, and he's reclining at table, and a woman comes with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Now, nard is not a word I often see. Perhaps it's something you see, but uh, what is nard? Nard was an oil extracted from a root that was native to India, uh, and in order to retain the fragrance uh, of the nard, the ointment was sealed oftentimes in small uh, alabaster flasks. 
Uh, these alabaster flasks were about five to nine inches high, and they had a narrow neck which would restrict the flow of the oil or the perfume. Uh, the indignant onlookers say it was, more, it was worth more than 300 denarii. Now, we know that one denarii was worth about a day's wage. So really, this was worth about a year's labor. This was a year's wage. Think for a moment of what it is that you make in a year. And now think for a moment of taking that paycheck, if you were to get a paycheck that was everything you make in a year, and handing it all over to Jesus all in one instant. That's what this woman does as she pours this ointment atop Jesus's head. Now, the value of the perfume and its identification as nard uh, means that it was more than likely a family heirloom. It was more than likely something that had been passed down from generation to generation, perhaps from this woman's mother uh, to her daughter. Now, I know it's... Uh, True enough that we hang on to our expensive uh, possessions, uh, we treat them well, but how much more do we hang on to those possessions that are both expensive and have been passed down to us from our family generations? You don't sell those things unless they are absolutely necessary to be sold, and even then, you might say, I'll do anything, but I'm not getting rid of that one thing. It would shame my family. It would shame my mother, my father, my grandfather, my grandmother, whoever it might be. I will not get rid of that. Yet here is this woman who doesn't dab just a little of her prized possessions, uh, her prized possession on top of Jesus' head, but she breaks the flask in order to pour it all atop her Lord's head. Verse 5, you have these indignant onlookers who are most likely Jesus' disciples, and oh, what righteous indignation they have. What honorable indignation. She could have given this to the poor. She could have sold this expensive ointment and given it to the poor. What a foolish and selfish woman. Yet you notice how Jesus responds in verse 7. You always have the poor, but you do not always have me. Here is a woman that understands that Christian commitment begins with Jesus Christ. It's worth noting that there is a parallel story in the Gospel of John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, uh, that is most likely depicting the same event and incident that we read of here. And there the woman is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, the same Lazarus that is raised from the dead by Jesus in John chapter 11. The same Mary, who in Luke chapter 10, sat at Jesus' feet, hanging on his every word, while her sister Martha was busying herself preparing the home and service. And you remember what Martha says to Jesus. She says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. You remember how Jesus responds to Martha. Martha, Martha, 
You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. There in Luke 10, Martha served the role of righteous indignation. One might even say honorable indignation. Here it is Jesus' disciples that serve the role of righteous indignation. For Martha and the disciples, Christianity was really seen in immersing yourself and committing yourself to good works. For Mary, Christianity was found in immersing yourself in and committing yourself to Jesus Christ. And that's not to say that Mary, in some way, didn't think we should have good works. All who are invested with the Holy Spirit will produce the fruit of the Spirit. But it must, must, must begin with immersing ourselves in and committing ourselves to Jesus Christ. So we see the commitment of Mary for her Lord. Second, we see the compassion for Jesus, the compassion for Jesus. Jesus says that the woman has anointed his body beforehand for burial. Now, I think this tells us two things. Uh, first, it shows us by what kind of death Jesus is going to die. Uh, it was common practice in the ancient world to anoint a dead body with oil uh, before the body was buried. However, there was one exception if that dead individual was a criminal. And so here is this woman recognizing that Jesus is going to die a criminal's death, and she is anointing his body beforehand because he is going to be handed over and treated as a common criminal. He will not receive that common anointing that dead bodies received in the first century. So it shows us by what kind of death this, this woman sees Jesus is going to die. She sees ahead of time that he is going to die a criminal's death. He is not going to receive that anointing that was common for dead bodies uh, in the first century. Number two, it also shows us that this woman is in fact giving her ointment to the poor. She knows that here is her Lord and her Savior, who is going to die a criminal's death. Here is her suffering servant, her poor suffering servant, who had no place to lay his head, who will die under false charges and will die a criminal's death, who up to this point has rebu been rebuked by his friends, cursed by leaders, denied by his people. He will say later in this very same chapter that in, a, in less than a week when he goes to the cross, his own friends, his own disciples are going to scatter and are going to leave him. At the cross, he will have no friends, and he won't even have his own father in heaven who will turn his face away from his son as he bears the weight of sin upon his shoulders and takes his holy wrath. In less than a week at the cross in Calvary, Jesus Christ will be shown to be the poorest man that has ever existed. 
both spiritually and physically destitute. And this woman knows it. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This woman recognizes the sacrifice of her Lord, the lengths that he has gone to save her, and she has compassion on him. She has sympathized with her Lord in his weakness, just as he has come down and has sympathized with us in ours. She knows the depths that her Lord has gone in order to make her rich. What is nard? What is a pure ointment to her? Her very riches stand in front of her. In the person of her Lord, her poor, suffering servant, master, and king. She knows his burial will be the burial that is for her. Now, the application here for us, of course, is different than it was for this woman at the time before Christ's death. We will never see Jesus Christ in his humiliated state. We will only see Jesus in his glorified, exalted, and victorious state. Yet, nevertheless, when we read of Gethsemane, when we read of his cries at the cross, we weep for him. We weep. For our suffering servant. But we don't just weep for him, we weep with him. Romans 6 4, Paul will say, We were buried with him by a baptism into death. Romans 6 8, We have died with Christ. Through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we are now united to Christ in his death and in his burial. So that as we read from God's living and active word and that same spirit that inherited the heart and mind of Christ that caused him to do his work that now inherits our hearts. As we read that living and active word, as we read of his cries of dereliction, as we read of Gethsemane and his suffering, we truly suffer with him. Even though we aren't there at the beginning, even though we we aren't there to see him before he goes to the cross, because we have been united to Jesus Christ by faith through his poured out spirit, when we read of his suffering, we suffer with our suffering servant. We suffer with Christ. Christ took us with him to the cross. And so there we are with him as we read of his death for our salvation. We have compassion for and with our poor, suffering Savior. So we see the commitment to Jesus that this woman has. We see the compassion she has for Jesus. And third and finally, we see the crown she receives from Jesus. Verse 9, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. 
Now, of course, we know this to be true because here we are over 2,000 years later lifting up this woman as an example of what it means to be a true servant and disciple of Christ. Now, I just want to close for the remainder of our time with two things about this crown that this woman receives from her Lord due to her service. First, we need to take note of the fact that this is a woman. We need to take note of the fact that this is a woman. We have seen, especially when we look back in chapter 10 in uh, the issue of divorce, that the first century Judaism was an extremely patriarchal society. And in many places within Judaism, women were almost treated like a commodity, almost like they weren't truly and fully human. Yet within the span of two chapters, Mark has depicted women as the examples of true devotion to the Lord. Remember at the end of chapter 12, where we get that story of the poor widow, where she is placed in contrast to those rich who are giving all of their money to uh, dedication to the temple. And she's contrasted with the scribes and the chief priests who are ostentatious and serve their pride and do all that they can to, to be seen and recognized by others. Yet here's this poor woman, this poor widow who just gives two measly copper coins, all that she has. And Jesus says she gives more than anyone else. And here again, Mark sandwiches in between the chief priests and scribes and Judas, a woman who pours her expensive ointment atop the head of her Lord and Savior. It really fits the theme that we have seen throughout Mark's gospel. And that theme is the ones who are unrecognized by society are the ones oftentimes that Jesus recognizes. And they are the ones that are remembered in the pages of redemptive history. Think of blind Bartimaeus back in chapter 10. When he cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. Think of the fact here in our passage that Jesus is dining at Simon the leper's house. Lepers were outcasts within first century Judaism. Yet here he is depicted as though he was just known by Mark's reading audience. He is just sitting and chilling at the leper's house. Christ's kingdom is filled with inconspicuous outcasts that we would never give a second look at. And what we learn from Mark is that we aren't simply meant to pity these people. We are meant to learn from them. Blind Bartimaeus is not depicted in Mark's gospel as one we just simply pity as a pitiable character. The poor widow isn't someone we just say, oh, that's just so sad too. No, they're depicted as examples and mentors and people that we are to look up to as to how we are to follow and devote our lives to Christ. What Mark's gospel teaches us is that within the church, our role models are often those we would least expect. In the kingdom of God, in the church, those society throws out 
as being outcasts are those that become our examples and our role models oftentimes. Do you see the wonder and the marvel and the inverted nature of God's design for his kingdom? Outcasts within society become leaders, become role models, become examples. Who are you not giving a second look at today? Because society throws them aside. Maybe it's someone in this church. What we learn throughout in Mark's gospel is oftentimes those are the people that teach us most of what godliness looks like. So we need to take note of the fact that this is a woman. Second and finally, this woman's remembrance is due to her service to the gospel. It's due to her service to the gospel. Jesus says that her name will be connected to the gospel and its proclamation throughout the world. Our reward and our recognition from Jesus comes from how we treat and live in accordance with the gospel of Jesus Christ that teaches the death of a criminal, that teaches of a crucified Savior. And that is what her name will be connected to. And our recognition from Jesus comes from our connection to him and his cross work. We can give to the poor all day long, brothers and sisters. But if the cross of Christ does not stand between us and our good works, we will not be remembered. We will hear the words from our Lord and Savior, I never knew you. Depart from me. Think for a moment, and I'll close with this. Think for a moment of the dying thief on the cross. He's on the cross next to Jesus, receiving his due reward for his works, as he will put it in Luke 23. His life was one of unrighteousness, not one of giving to the poor. It was one of the complete opposite. He was taking from others. We will be told in Mark chapter 15 that he reviled Christ for a time while they're dying on the cross together. But as he and Christ neared the end of their lives, the man recognized the death of Jesus for what it is. And he said, remember me. And we all know the words well. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Brothers and sisters, we say it ad nauseum within reformed walls, but it is a truth that we can never say enough. We are not saved by our works. It is not our works that causes Christ to remember us. It is Christ alone and his cross alone that will cause Christ to say to us, come, brother, sister, son, daughter, into your heavenly home. And the crown of glory is for those that put their faith in a common criminal, in a crucified Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Dear Father, we praise you and we thank you that we are not saved by our works. For if we were to count our iniquities, who could stand? O Lord, we 
crumble. As we learned this morning in Sunday school, we, we crumble before your holiness because we are sinners before a holy God. And Father, we pray that you would give us Christ this morning and that throughout our days we would learn to immerse ourselves in him first and foremost and that he would always be the source and the foundation and even the goal of all the good works we do within your kingdom and for your kingdom and for your glory. Help us to do this by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. For we ask it in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Would you please?